What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The complicated relationship between the Fed and the markets is getting more fragile as the words tapering and transitory become points of contention. We'll debate what's happening in the real economy and what investors actually want from this Fed. Plus, Oatly hits the market as a traditional IPO, and it's off to a decent start. Are direct listings and SPACs falling out of favor? And timber lumber prices crack and are whipsawing around after their climb to record highs. But analysts say this bull market could still last a couple more years. We're going to speak with one executive about how his lumber business is faring right now. But we start with the markets and Dom Chu here as always. Well, lumber is still trying to find a base right now, Kelly. But we have seen the stock market try to bottom out at least a little bit here. We're looking to try and snap a three-day losing streak for the stocks overall. The Dow Industrial is up about 180 points. The S&P 500, 4150 the last trade there. So now moving at least decently above its 50-day average price. Remember, we were talking about 4,080. That mark there was the level we were watching. Now, the Nasdaq Composite outperforming in a pretty big way, up about 1.5%, far outpacing the rest of the overall indices. So keep an eye on that. Uh, Momentum, tech stocks, cryptocurrency, transformative innovation. The ARK Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK, is up 3%, trying to find its own bid as well. We are still roughly down about one-third of its value since the record highs that we saw earlier on this spring. So the ARK Innovation ETF and some of the stocks that underlie it, think, remember, Tesla, Square, Roku, Teladoc, some of the biggest holdings there, will keep those stocks in mind. And then on the retail side of things, there's been a trend, better than expected earnings reports, maybe even raise guidance for some of these companies this week, and yet the stocks react fairly negatively. Kohl's and BJ's Wholesale, those cases today, down 10% for Kohl's and down about 4% for BJ's, even though we had better than expected results from both of those retailers. Mind you, they both had good runs. And then Speaking of complicated relationships, what about between the U.S. government and crypto investors? How about that one? Well, Bitcoin is still up about 2% right now, 39,653. But look at the intraday action right about here. We were about 41,500 before. And the reason why was we got headlines from the U.S. Treasury Department saying that they want to better track and document some of the crypto transactions that are happening right now because they want their cut. Now, Kelly, if we were doing this in rapid fire right now, I'd say maybe that's the U.S. government maybe incrementally legitimizing cryptocurrency by saying, hey, let's do it. We just want our cut. I saw you tweet that and I thought it was one of the smartest takes I had seen. Uh, And I'm going to pretend that I came up with it and talk about it in rapid fire. It's all yours. Take it. It's all yours. (laughs) Dom Chu. Let's turn back to the broader markets, which are married to the Fed these days. And it's kind of been that case for a while. In this relationship, though, it's often codependent. They're hanging on each other's words and actions, sometimes working together and other times at opposite ends of the debate. Right now, the market can't decide what it wants from its significant other. If the Fed hints at tapering, markets react poorly. If if the Fed doesn't hint at it, markets react poorly. So what do the markets actually want from this Fed? Bob Bassani has more. Hi, Bob. Hi, Kelly. It's complicated. The Federal Reserve may be trying to project a coherent vision of what it expects on policy 
and future rate hikes, but the market cannot seem to agree on what version of the Fed it wants to believe. Does it want the Fed to be hawkish or dovish? Does it want the Fed to be tapered, uh, to begin tapering and begin raising rates in the very near future? Or do they want it to put it off, as the Fed seems to imply it will? A couple months ago, traders were concerned the economy was going to be so strong that the Fed would be forced to taper later this year and raise rates in early 2022. That would be sooner than they had anticipated. That concern was stoked in a statement in the Fed minutes yesterday, which noted that a number of participants suggested that if the economy continued to make rapid progress toward the committee's goals, it might be appropriate at some point in upcoming meetings to begin discussing a plan for adjusting the pace of asset purchases. Now, surprisingly, this comment, the stock market barely moved on it. And it's up today. It's suggesting that perhaps the market is getting more comfortable with the Fed becoming a tad more proactive. Many want communication from the Fed to begin right now. They want to hear now that the Fed is thinking about, thinking about changing its stance on tapering and raising rates. That might be a short-term negative for the market potentially, but many participants believe that it is a long-term positive. And you can see that today. Uh, there are, it's very clear here. Uh, Kelly, that a lot of people feel that this is good news, the statement they made yesterday, that implies the Fed's not going to fall behind now, which is another big concern they have, that they're not going to have to slam on the brakes later if they communicate to us slowly the process. They want slow communication, and they want a clear idea of what the Fed's going to be doing. Bingo, bingo. Bob, this is like the debate everybody's having right now, and because they're not sure if the Fed is sure about what it wants. Is it serious about the socioeconomic goal of letting things run hot because it has kind of a more of a political agenda or not? Is it going to be like the Fed that we know from kind of the back in the olden days when, of course, if things started to run hot, they would start to talk about the taper? So it's interesting to me, and I wonder what you would boil it down to, especially after numbers like the Philly Fed this morning, which showed that these supply problems are basically slowing the economy. Do you think the market actually wants the Fed to taper? Uh, Yes. Here's what they want. Look how the market has evolved. They have gone from, in February, everyone was scared to death that, oh, my God, the economy is going to heat up and the Fed is going to have to taper and raise rates a lot sooner than expected. And that was the big fear. Now the market thinking is evolving to the point where it's actually almost the opposite. They're concerned that the Fed may wait so long at this point that they may be behind the Mm -hmm. curve and then suddenly have to slam on the brakes. And we know that that causes a lot of problems. So I think the market's mental evolution indicates tell us slowly. We understand you're not going to do something down the road, but we want a glide path to what's going on, and then we're more comfortable. Look, that statement yesterday was what people were concerned about two or three, four months ago, and it's barely moved the markets today. That's a sign I think people's thinking is evolving. It's so fascinating. Bob, thank you very much. Our Bob Bassani will speak a little bit more about this right now. Will the Fed start talking about tapering sooner rather than later, and how will the market react to that. Joining me now are Ellen Zentner, the chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley, and Jeff Crumpleman, who is chief investment strategist and head of equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Ellen, it's great to see you. So your view is that the Fed starts uh, the actual taper next spring, but begins to speak about it uh, clearly, signal it more clearly this fall. Is that at odds with its stated goal, though, of letting things run a little hot, so to speak? No, Kelly, I don't think that's at odds at all. With the tapering, what the Fed is doing is they're continuing to provide accommodation, but at a slower pace. So you're still growing the balance sheet. You're still providing support. But, you know, with the economy recovering as it is, you don't need to press your foot on the gas pedal that hard 
with 120 billion uh, uh, purchases of securities uh, every month. And so at some point, you need to acknowledge that you've seen the kind of progress you want to see, that it's likely to continue, and you should start taking your foot off that gas pedal. Would it be fair for me to kind of summarize this as the old Fed would have already started talking about the taper and maybe doing it by the fall, but the new Fed is going to kind of delay that timeline by six or maybe even 12 months? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, one thing that we noted when the Fed put in its new framework, that framework was a structural change in the conduct of monetary policy intended to change the shape of policymaking over the course of a business cycle. And if you had put the same framework in place in the last cycle, they might not have raised rates until, say, 2018, not 2015. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is very much a Fed that wants to run a high-pressure economy that will be very lagged in the way it removes policy accommodation. And that's why even after tapering, we don't expect them to start raising rates until the third quarter of 2020. Three. That's how long they're going to wait. And that is a, a very much, as you, as you noted, a new Fed. Yeah. So, Jeff, I, do you as an investor want them to start tapering now? Are you concerned about what you're seeing with some of the sort of supply chain uh, pressures and just the, the pace of growth? Do you want them to, to move that timeline up? Not necessarily. I think it is all about communication. This is almost the opposite of that Fed pivot, you know, that we had earlier where, um, Powell basically said, we're so far away from neutral. Just don't be extreme. I think that Ellen gets it right that we want the Fed to be measured. And after all, we're not at full employment. And we are still in transition going from stimulus-induced growth to hopefully more organic growth as people come back into the workforce. So I don't think it's time to um, you know just really be vigilant here. I think what um, the, the market really wants to hear Um, is that they're looking at the inflation data. Don't predict the data. Let's see how this does kind of shake out as we get this transitory base effect rise in inflation. Be watchful, um, but don't be behind the curve and ignore the fact that inflation is accelerating. I think this measured approach is pretty good. So speaking of inflation accelerating, it's really, really extraordinary to look at the change in market leadership, Jeff, where we've seen financials do really well this year. Some of the energy companies do really well, but technology in, in some ways has moved sideways. How would you place your bets uh, for the next six months? You know, we, we remain balanced. We think that that really is the key. And so we want a blend of both growth and value. And yesterday is just a great example. We had a wonderful day in the portfolio as we retain a fair amount of technology exposure, pockets of healthcare and consumer discretionary, and yet we also have increased some exposure to financials and energy as we've seen this rotation. But I don't think it's time to just be extreme and heroic in one direction or the other. We're going to get chopped and volatility, and I think you want to be balanced in some of these themes within technology. They're not going away. Earnings are not going away, and some of these stocks non-fangs are very attractively valued. Interesting. All right. So, Ellen, let's bring it back to what investors should watch for out of this Fed in terms of communication and timing. I mean, is Jackson Hole in late August the kind of thing where they might lay this all out? Um, You know, even in the meetings and in the minutes, what kind of language kind of signals to you, okay, the old Fed is back, they're going to have to lean against this, or like, no, they're serious, they're really going to wait longer than people might anticipate? Yeah, so I think on both sides of that, you know, uh, Vice Chair Clarida used the words that they're watching inflation. They're attuned and attentive to higher inflation. So the first thing is 
when we get past this near-term surge in the inflation data, uh, which is because of the easy year-on-year comparisons and the COVID unwind, uh, unwinding of distortion, that first data print is really the June data print that comes in July that would give them a sense of how much is inflation backing off of this near-term surge. It doesn't back off much, and probably more of them will express concern of, are we getting this right? Is really all of it transient, or is there something more underlying here we should be worried about? Um, Also, we'll have a few more employment reports by later in the summer as well. So far, it's been a disappointing start. We also heard that from Vice Chair uh, Chair Clarida last week. Um, So do we catch up? Do we play catch up? Because remember, in the statement, they said, that they want, or in the minutes, they said they want to see uh, rapid progress. And so, you know, it's it's subtle and it's vague. And that's something that markets don't like. They don't like vagueness. So it'll be up to the Fed to really describe how they're thinking about that rapid progress in their speeches, in the June meeting, in the minutes from that meeting, in the July meeting. Um, and absolutely, you know, any time from the summer onward, They could really provide more concrete forward guidance on the balance sheet, but it's still probably going to mean that's the early heads up and that tapering still begins in the first quarter of next year. It's fascinating how even little phrases like rapid progress become very important. So I appreciate you highlighting that. And I know, Jeff, uh, on your picks, you have Baker Hughes, Albemarle in the materials space. Uh, Aptiv, Elanco, Animal Health. So if people want some specificity, there you go. Uh, thank you both for your time uh, kicking things off here with a great discussion. Jeff Krumpelman and Ellen Zetner of Morgan Stanley. We have a news alert on Snap. Let's get over to Julia Borston with more for us. What's happening, Julia? Well, Snap share is popping as much as 4.5%. That stock is now up about 3.5% on news that the company now reaches over 500 monthly active users. Previously, Snap only reported daily active users. That number is 280 million daily users as of its most recent earnings. So that means that 56% of its monthly users open the app daily. Now, the company also saying that nearly half of U.S. smartphone users do use Snapchat monthly, and about 40% of its users are now outside North America and Europe, with over 100% growth in daily users in India in each of the last five quarters. Now, to put Snap's monthly users in context, Facebook has 2.8 billion monthly active users, with 66% of those monthly users accessing its services daily. Pinterest has 478 million monthly users, and Twitter hasn't reported a monthly active user number since February 2019, Back then, it had 321 million monthly users. Kelly? Snap has significantly more monthly users than Twitter. That, that's interesting to me. Why are, do you think they're disclosing this metric now, especially being one that Twitter has stopped reporting? Well, so listen, that was, that was what Twitter's numbers were back at the beginning of 2019. So things could have changed for Twitter over the past two years. But I think what's happening right now, and this is all coming out in a developer event that is happening as I speak, is the company really wants to give a better sense of what its reach is. Those daily numbers are crucial because that shows really tight engagement. The people who think of Snap as a utility that they use daily, but they also want to give a broader sense of the reach. Right now, they're talking about some new tools that they're unveiling, and we'll be back more with more at the end of the hour, Kelly, as they make more of these announcements about what they're doing for their developers and also for content creators. Of course, Kelly, there's been such a land grab for content creators between these social platforms. True. And look at Snap shares up 3.5%. On this, Julia, thanks. We'll see you again soon. Julia Borston with the latest. Coming up, Oatly making its public debut today, and it's going over better than its cringy Super Bowl ad. The stock up 26% right now. What does it say about the overall health of the IPO market? 
That's next. Plus, NYU's Dean Evaluation says this cryptocurrency has a better shot at becoming a commodity in a good way than Bitcoin, the name, and what sets it apart still ahead on the exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Electricity. A big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Oatly is bucking the recent soft patch in the IPO market. Shares of the alt milk maker are up double digits right now, up 26%. They opened at 22 and change above the IPO price of 17. And it comes right after Squarespace's lackluster debut yesterday. And the Honest Company, Bumble, Coupang, and Coinbase are all down significantly from their opening day highs. For more on all of this, I'm joined now by Corey Drebush, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and Brett Thomas, who's co-founder and managing partner of Kavu Ventures, which was an early Oatly investor. Great to have you both here. And Brett, I'll just begin with you. I, I, I guess I'm curious if this tells us that this particular product category is so hot it can override some of these uh, problems that we've seen lately in the IPO space. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it was literally two years ago, I think, when I was on uh, this show with you. Um, we were talking about Beyond Meat yes. on May 2015. <laughs> and then I think Beyond Meat caught consumers, investors by surprise. And here we are two years later where the, we, the balls moved even more forward. The world's progressed um, from a health and wellness perspective. And plant is now more and more part of our popular culture. You mentioned the, the Super Bowl ad, for instance. It was bad in a lot of ways, but it was genius in a lot of ways because it got people talking about the brand. So I think people were anticipating this IPO and it's a great brand that's built brand loyalty in a category that typically is a commoditized market. Well, Brett, I will I will say I still feel like I'd rather be Starbucks than Oatly in this uh, environment, if you will. Right. Because if you're Starbucks, you just get to ride from one hot trend to the other to the other. You have enough purchasing power to get all the Oatly supply that we heard last hour. No one can get in smaller coffee shops. But we also know from uh, our, our consumer goods purveyor, Dominic Chu, that Costco makes a great oat milk. Why do people need to have Oatly's in particular? I mean, that's where I wonder long term. They might be a disruptor. They might have a great track record. But ultimately, do they have a moat? Yeah, listen, I think when we look at investments, um, you look at category. And the total addressable market of dairy is, is massive, right? I think it's expected to go to 790 billion or so in, in 2025. So, um, and plant and plant dairy is about 18 billion right now. So 3%. So for, for our perspective and how we look at it is they don't need to get a massive market share of the total global dairy um, TAM 
in order to be a massive category and then also massive business. I think people go to brand. Um, you know, when Beyond Me came out, and I keep using that as the parallel, mm-hmm. I couldn't recall what patty I would go to the supermarket and buy. And most consumers wouldn't. Now people go and, and they branded a product in a commoditized market. You, you can't underestimate the power of brand and loyalty. And yes, Costco uh, can have similar offerings and they've got a great brand. And I think that's why they have that loyalty. But it's not a winner take all category necessarily. They are the, the dominant leader. Um, I think they can create a platform where they're not just milk, right? They are desserts and can go into yeah. yogurt and go into other categories as well, which gives them a little bit of diversification. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting point. Corey, let me bring you in and kind of broaden this out a little bit to the IPO market more broadly. As you guys were saying, this is a big week for testing the IPO market. I would say it hasn't gone that well, and in particular for Squarespace for that direct listing. You know, last hour, Josh Brown said, who wants to buy a direct listing? Because investors, you know, insiders can sell the shares at any point that they want to. And that creates real overhang on the stock. Uh, do you think that the IPO, the traditional IPO, could come out of this whole period of direct listings and SPACs and all the rest of it as back to kind of being the main way to go public? I think it's a little too early to tell. Um, and Hein, thanks so much for having me on. Obviously, Squarespace's IPO yesterday was... A- was a bit of a struggle. Um, we all saw the reference price was, was pretty low to begin with, well below the last fundraising round for uh, Squarespace. And then the shares opened below the reference price, which is the first time that happened for a direct listing, at least for the large direct listings we followed. Um, and, and that's never a good thing. But it's just one. We've seen other successful ones, and it was a tough market. Um tough market out there. NASDAQ was down. Um, it's been down for the past several sessions. So I, I think it'll be a little early to call the end of direct listing. Fair enough. What would you say we've, we know now, having been through Squarespace yesterday and only today, about the sta- what is the current status of the IPO market, broadly speaking? How healthy is it? Well, in addition to um, Oatly and Squarespace, another I, another company did go public uh, last night and start trading today, Procure. Procure. Um, it's a construction planning software company, and its shares are also up a lot today. And it priced its IPO, I believe, a little above its expected range. So between that and Oatly, those are both good signs, I think, for the IPO market. And I'm not saying that we're going to see – in go gangbusters again, but I think it is, those are good signs. Everyone I've talked to has said there's a lot um, in the pipeline waiting to possibly come out in June, and a lot of those companies and their underwriters are going to be making those decisions in the next week or so. Hmm. And I think this is a good signal that for a good quality company that has strong growth, maybe not just single digit growth, actually good strong growth that they can get done and they can trade well. Okay. It's a great point. Brett, we'll leave it there. We have to go. But what do you think you're going to be on to talk about this time next year? <laughs> well, you've, yeah, you've had flying taxis, so who knows? But um, <laughs> I think you'll still see the emergence of plant going. And I think one last point, um, there hasn't been a lot of high growth consumer brands that have typically tapped the public markets. So I do think there is, if you're a small mid cap uh, public company investor, I think these companies that have that ESG component that are better for you, uh, there's, you're going to see a lot more of those come down the, the pipeline here. And um, right. 
the market should, should like that. Well, then we'll be seeing you again soon. Brett Thomas and Corey Drebush, thank you both very much for your time today to talk about this IPO as Oatly surges above its opening price. Coming up, it's been a wild ride for lumber with prices up 60% this year. One of the nation's largest lumber wholesalers joins us with an on-the-ground view of the impact that's having on the industry. And don't forget, you can watch us live anytime using the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a moment. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here are some of the movers this hour. Bitcoin briefly turning negative after a comeback earlier on. It's now up about 1%. All of this the result of the IRS calling for any crypto transfers over $10,000 to be reported. Now both China and the U.S. appear to be cracking down more heavily on digital currency. Social stocks trading higher. Snap, we already mentioned. Pinterest higher today as well. Facebook lagging. Uh, Snap's partner summit is still underway. We will bring you more updates as we get them on its product innovations. And the video game stocks are powering up. Take Two is up 11% this week and tracking for its best weekly gain since last November. It's also on pace to snap a five-week losing streak. And finally, look at Chipotle getting a big upgrade to buy at UBS. The firm saying that stock should benefit from the reopening while still holding on to increased digital sales from the pandemic. A lot of people seem to like those that can straddle both worlds. For more on their call, go to cnbc.com slash pro. In the meantime, let's get over to Rahel Solomon for our CNBC News Update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. The House has approved $1.9 billion to upgrade security at Capitol Hill. The measure passed by a single vote. Some Republicans supported the bill, but many argue that it's too expensive, including some Democrats. Others oppose the use of National Guard troops to prevent attacks. And get ready for another busy hurricane season. Federal forecasters are predicting an above-average number of storms, including three to five major hurricanes and between 13 and 20 named storms. The first named storm, in fact, could happen even before the official start of hurricane season on June 1st. See how that tropical disturbance is tracking tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. And team T- Tim Tebow back in a football jersey. The 2007 Heisman Trophy winner has signed with the Jacksonville Jaguars as a tight end. He will be playing for his former college coach, Urban Meyer, who is now the head coach of the Jaguars. But uh, Kelly, talk about wow. career longevity there. I don't think he's been in an NFL jersey since... 2015? That's amazing. But there, there was the guy from Monday Night Football who then went back into the NFL, and he was, like, amazing. What's his name? Well, but let's see. We'll see. We sure will see. Yeah, I think Tebow's a little bit older, though, but still, it'd be a fun— Yeah, uh, I think he's, like, 33. Yeah, ancient. Ancient. Uh, Rahel, thank you. We'll see you soon. Straight ahead is Ford, the demise of Lordstown Motors. Why Ether has a leg up on Bitcoin. And the CEO of TikTok parent company, Bike Dance, says he'd rather daydream than manage people. Really? All that and more is coming up in Rapid Fire. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. And joining me to break down the headlines today are Dominic Chu, platformer editor and CNBC contributor Casey Newton. And in her Rapid Fire debut, CNBC reporter Christina Partzanevelis, which is just so much fun to say. Yes, uh, you said assuming it so I got well. It right. Yes. <laughs> Christina, welcome. Thank you. All right. First topic. This is a wild one today. Wolf Research downgrading Lordstown Motors to underperform and putting a $1 liquidation target on the shares, saying there's no way they can compete in the EV pickup space after Ford unveiled its electric F-150. Ford's Lightning base model is around $40,000. That's 12 grand less than the Lordstown Endurance pickup. And Wolf says Lordstown can't match Ford's price or reliability. And with no plan B in the pipeline, Dom, they say it would just be best for shareholders to sell out. The shares are down 13.5% today. They've lost half their value this year. I mean, the the competitive aspect is the thing that really gets you because it it took a while to play out, but you knew that there were going to be entrants in here and you knew that the big automakers around the world, not just Ford, but everybody from Volkswagen to Toyota to Honda to every one of the U.S. automakers is getting in on the action here. The idea that you now have such a high profile entrant in Ford and of course, President Biden making the trip out there to see the facilities drive around in the vehicle. What it comes down to is whether or not there is a future for anybody outside the ones with massive balance sheets when it comes to this EV space. Now, Tesla is one we talk about all the time. The Cybertruck, I don't know. I'm still waiting to see when that thing comes out and how much of a following it will have. But the F-150 is the most popular pickup truck in America. The ICE one, the internal combustion engine yeah. one. You've got to figure this is going to carry over in some way to the rest of the EV market for them. Christina, I just love the fact that, you know, it's normally an analyst would say, given that I'm downgrading it to sell and lowering my price target, not I'm, I'm downgrading it and, and saying it has basically liquidation value. I mean, that was so shocking to me. I know. Tell us how you really feel going from 18 bucks price target all the way to a dollar. So clearly he's enamored, like many others, with the F-150. 50, the electric uh, pickup truck. And we know even just the market cap, we talked about how it's a behemoth. That market cap is at $42 billion. This is a company that is just, well, the, the F-150s are just so popular with everyone. It is one of the largest consumer products out there after Apple iPhones. So we know that there's somebody, a dominant player in the market. But we can't just bash completely on Lordstown. So I'll just take the the other side of the coin. There are some pros, no debt, and the fact that it's not beholden to all its suppliers. So I'm trying to find a few good snippets in that report, even though the stock is getting hammered. Right. Maybe bring its value to $1.50. Casey, what would you add? Uh, Just that I would like a Cybertruck. So Elon, if you're out there, send one my way. (laughs) So many fanboys. All right. Moving along, the deed of valuation is making a bold call on crypto. NYU professor Aswath Demoter and telling CNBC that Ether has a better shot at becoming a real commodity than Bitcoin. He says the Ether is an engine that helps drive blockchain transactions, while Bitcoin is purely speculative and lacks an endgame. Both got crushed yesterday, Christina, but Ether is outpacing Bitcoin by about triple this year. Well, do we really think it's a bold call? Because this is a conversation that's been going on for quite some time. And I only say this because I had a I was at a party and we were talking about this and uh, somebody at the party just said, think of Ether like a, a giant foundation, a platform where you can keep building applications. You can keep providing smart contracts. You, it's going to be the center of decentralized finance, which means that you're going to bypass those banks, bypass those companies and just deal directly through the technology. Bitcoin, on the other hand, doesn't offer that platform. So that's the major difference between the two. There's a lot of room for Ether or Ethereum to grow. And just in July, there's going to be a major revamp, too. So we could see some volatility coming, but it could make it a lot more scalable. And Casey, I mean, there are drawbacks that people kind of say about Ethereum, maybe 
it has like adverse network effects where it gets mm. more expensive the bigger it grows. But, you know, when you read a little bit into that whole NFT phenomenon, that appears to ride the rails of Ethereum as well. So, yes, that's the all of these are why people say, look, you can get Bitcoin and blockchain all in one. Um, I guess that argument just works until it doesn't. Right. Look, I mean, there are a lot of smart people out there who are big believers in Ethereum. I saw a lot of people excitedly tweeting yesterday when the price crashed about how much that they were buying up. So it clearly has that core base of super fans. But at the end of the day, we're several years into it and we still haven't seen a breakout hit come off of this platform. Uh, you know, at some time, I think Ethereum is going to have to put up or shut up here. What about NFTs, Casey? Well, so NFTs, I think, are something that is worth watching. I think there are a lot of folks who are going to get into the idea of these digital collectibles. And we, we have seen some successes there. Um, I think the question, though, is just like, do you need Ethereum for that? Right, um, or right. just going to invent their own coins? Absolutely. Dom will give you a quick last word. So I would, I would say this. Three years ago, I was at a CB Insights Future of Fintech conference doing a fireside chat with Joseph Lubin, who's the co-founder of Ethereum. And his whole notion is this is Web 3.0. This is all about decentralization. I would also say that it's about the utilization of it. It's a faster platform. So if you're looking for transaction-based kind of blockchain elements, this is the one. And that's the reason why maybe Bitcoin is perhaps falling a little bit more out of favor versus Ethereum in that chart that you just showed here today. Dom, I hope you bought some Ethereum after talking to him. (laughs) I should have back then. (laughs) All right. From Web uh, 3.0 to 1.0, Microsoft is pulling the plug on Internet Explorer after 25 years in service. Effective next June, it will shift focus by only supporting Microsoft Edge on Windows 10. Now, a change might have been necessary because take a look at this. After dominating web browsing in the 1990s, Explorer's market share has dwindled down to nothing. I mean, as of last month, it and Edge only had 4% of global market share compared to 64% for Chrome, Casey, and 19% for Safari. Yeah, I mean, this is a platform that Microsoft owned and then really underinvested in. You know, Internet Explorer, you know, maybe dying uh, officially coming up soon. But I think it really died in 2008 when Google announced Chrome and just sort of immediately had a much faster, better browser on the market. So I think it will just sort of remain a mystery why Microsoft let this one get away from it so badly. Wait a minute. Didn't it die because they had like the biggest antitrust, you know, of all time? I mean, wasn't this was like a... I mean, yes, they had kind of let it linger anyway, but I mean, it's a big deal when they start saying you can't package it with every operating system. Precisely. Go ahead. (laughs) I'm sorry. But yes, to that point, yes, you're right. That was a a huge problem for them. But eventually they did make it through that case. They could have continued to invest in web browsing if they really wanted to. Christina? Oh, I was just going to say rest in peace. It hasn't been popular for the past five years. They cut support last year. And like you said, it killed Netscape. So now it's time for it to go. (laughs) It killed Netscape. Dom? I would say this. I mean, how many of these platforms are actually used on? I mean, the last time I can't remember the last time I really used a web browser here at work, maybe. But I'm always on my mobile phone. I'm always on my iPad. Right. So it's it's either Safari or some kind of Chrome related event for an Android device. Right. Everybody's mobile these days. So, yes, these are still desktop based. But I would say Safari and some kind of Google Chrome browser are the ones most people are using most of the time anyway. Dom, I think that also the relevant point here for investors is they can laugh all the way to the bank. They go, great, who, why do we care about a browser? That is literally so 1990s. Look what Sayu Nadella has done with this company. Whether they have any market share in, the, in an Internet browser has made zero difference to what he's been I, I would also say this, though. I, I, I use Microsoft Edge on my home laptop. There are some fun elements to it, right, some features that are actually better than what you get 
on a traditional web browser Such on as? the phone. So there, there, there's tools that, that kind of like keep track of what you do. There's, there's enhanced bookmarks. There's all kinds of ways that you can enhance productivity with some of these other elements, I guess. I, now, I'm not a power, you know, Chrome <laughs> user or anything, but I just know that Edge is the one that my we Windows might, operating system We might boost to. its market share to like 3% after this segment if people start... <laughs> Start checking it out. Maybe four. All right. Finally, the CEO and co-founder of TikTok parent ByteDance is bowing out in a pretty candid way. Zhang Yiming admitting he's not very social and sending a memo to employees saying, the truth is I lack some of the skills that make an ideal manager. He's going to step down as chief executive immediately and move to a key strategy role at the end of the year. Despite any management shortcomings, Yiming successfully navigated this company through last year's national security battle with President Trump, and he's helped grow TikTok into a behemoth with 700 million users around the globe. And Casey, should we buy this melodrama or is this a a power struggle with the Chinese government? That's exactly what it is. This cover story is ridiculous. But look, this is a shocking story, right? TikTok and, and ByteDance is one of the, the biggest tech successes in the world right now. And it seems like its CEO is essentially afraid of the regulators that are coming after so many of the uh, the, the CEOs of the other tech giants in China and is now basically going to try to shadow manage the company from the boardroom uh, or otherwise who knows what will happen to ByteDance. So this is just a, a, a really great illustration of, of how hard it is to build an enduring company under an authoritarian regime. And Christina, I don't really blame him, right? I mean, look what's happened to Jack Ma. It might not be a bad idea to go, you know what? Someone else can deal with this. Well, someone else. It's his college roommate. So it's somebody that's going to be within the family. They've known each other forever. Uh, The new CEO is also the head of HR. So he already has a major pulse over the entire company. I do think it has a lot to do with China and the regulators. But like you mentioned, 700 million active users every single month. It's much smaller than YouTube at $2 billion, but people, according to a leaked document, people are spending 89 minutes a day on TikTok. We need to get on it, because I'm yes. assuming you're not on it. No, my husband is a TikTok star. Uh, of oh, I'm some, sorry. I didn't know that. You know, big in the insurance world. I'll let people go fi- uh, figure out what that means, Dom. But I, I think TikTok actually is going to... It's very difficult to create content for TikTok as someone who's, who's helped to try to do it. I mean, it's unbelievably difficult, and it's because it was originally meant to be a, a music and dance app, I think there actually could easily be somebody, maybe Instagram Reels or something, who step into the market if TikTok loses focus. I, I would say this. I, I'm, I feel like I'm going to step down from my role here and spend some more time with my family, you know, do that sort of thing. That's, I mean, kind of what happened here, right? So Dom would rather daydream than... You don't want to be a TikTok star, I can't make TikTok. I don't, I, I'm, just, I'm just not savvy enough technology-wise to make a you TikTok You guys are sounding video. like older people. we got to get with the younger no, generation, right? Myself know, I'm, included. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, so I, I, I'm older. I'm not a boomer yet, but you I'm You just I'm ask close. anybody how hard it is to stay big on TikTok, how much work they're putting into these things, and it's like, you know, the CEO is kind of emblematic of the struggle every user feels. That's why, they're, the that's why those influencers, they're making millions of dollars, right? I mean, Yeah, it's going to cost them millions. Uh, to pull some of these off. All right, we'll move along. Guys, thank you all very much. Christina, it's been a pleasure today. Dominic Chu, Casey Newton, and Christina Partsinevelis. Still ahead, lumber futures are higher today, but they're having a wild week. They're down about 15%, and we're going to speak with a key executive about what's driving the price action, whether demand is cooling off or just supply is a problem, and why you might want to hold off on some projects. That's next. Before we go, take a look at shares of Poshmark, which are surging here in just the last few minutes. It's up 8%. They just announced a new social shopping partnership with Snap, which will bring Poshmark Marketplace to that app. Julie Borson will have more on this and all of the Snap announcements in just a moment. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back. Take a look at lumber. The futures up about 4% today after yesterday's wild ride. Prices are down 19% so far from their record peak on May 10th. Now, these sky-high prices, remember, we're up 60% this year, I think ninefold from last year. You've got tight supply. But the issue is all of that is slowing demand. Sherwood Lumber on Long Island in New York is one of the nation's biggest independent wholesalers. It distributes to Home Depot and Lowe's, as well as small businesses across 48 states. Their sales are down 27 percent in the last couple of weeks. Let's bring in Sherwood's chief operating officer, Kyle Little. Kyle, we appreciate uh, you being here so much because this is a microcosm of the entire economy right now, which is is prices going up and growth is booming and all this stuff because in a good way that's helping businesses or is it actually harming them? Tell us what you're experiencing. Kelly, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, yes, we've seen, you know, lumber is literally one of the, the hottest commodities that, that we've seen in, in the recent past. And what we're experiencing today is literally unprecedented. It seems like a, a word that's been overused in many, many ways. But one of the key metrics that we will look at specifically in measuring short-term demand uh, versus uh, uh, and, and pace of sales is looking at our uh, current shipments relative to our actual sales pace. And t- over the last six months, we have accelerated that sales pace relative to the shipping rate uh, up, up, upwards of uh, a double and triple the amounts. In the last two weeks, we've seen a decrease from the peak uh, that we uh, saw at the end of uh, uh, April uh, of about 27% over the last two weeks. And it looks like we'll see a similar kind of uh, reduction uh, this week uh, as well. Uh, volatility uh, is, is, is all over the place, and mm-hmm. we expect that to continue to be, be that way in lumber. Um, however, uh, at the price structure that we most recently moved to, uh, we definitely are starting to see some real-time changes in the demands curve. So we have kind of surveyed a few analysts who follow lumber, and I know this is your own opinion as well, that because I thought maybe, okay, the, the drop from the recent highs, maybe that was, the, that was it for the highs and we're going to kind of settle down here. But you guys seem to think, no, that this bullish you know, price cycle could go on for 18 to 24 to maybe 36 months. What happens to business if that's the case? Well, so we've done a, our team has done a tremendous amount of research at, at the end of 2020 and kind of under, trying to understand uh, cyclical waves of prices and what have you. And what we found uh, in our analysis are two specific data points that would tell us that lumber and what is happening in lumber has happened before and happened, in fact, happened seven times before this. And in those seven times, uh, the uh, cycle lasted for as short as nine months and as long as 41 months. So our, our belief is that this cycle that we're currently in, uh, you know, which is about is the 11th month, uh, is here uh, for the foreseeable future. And uh, does not mean that we're not going to um, trade off of the most recent highs, which we just saw. Uh, but uh, the lows uh, will tend to be much, much higher than they were in the past because right. of uh, the lack of uh, supply and the high rate of demand that's out in the market. And obviously that's going to have huge impacts on everything from the cost of housing to the ability to kind of get renovation projects done, all the other uses for lumber. I guess my last question is, are you having to turn customers away because you don't have enough supply? Are, are you literally getting all of the lumber that you need and it's just a matter, you know, of at what price? And are our customers kind of battling against one another to get their hands on this product? 
So I wouldn't say that we're turning any customers away. Like we have a very, very solid supply chain and we continue to uh, uh, work on and build upon the relationships that we've had over many, many years. Uh, however, I think what you look at in regard to all the products that the customer needs for that job site, we are seeing other things that Sherwood Lumber doesn't supply that are now holding up uh, the activity at the job site level. So there's fasteners, there's different kinds of lumber products, other commodity items, roofing, gypsum, insulation. These things uh, are on heavy allocation right now that are starting to really put a backlog uh, on the uh, projects that are currently in the in the field. Yeah, we saw some of that in the Philly Fed survey this morning uh, as well. A lot of anecdotal evidence of that. So I, I'm also just curious, uh, what happens to your profit margins? You know, normally people on the outside, they start going, oh, these they're price gouging and these, you know, they know that it, blah, blah, blah. Are you, do you guys tend to be able to increase profit margins during a time like this? Do they decrease? Do they stay the same? What te- what, what's happening right now? Well, I think the profit margins stay, you know, I would say in, in times of hyperinflation, it's all about timing of when you bought the material versus when you're selling the material. So, the, so historically, you would see profit margins increase. But as we move to this higher uh, uh, part of the range, inventory levels become narrower and, 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 and smaller. Therefore, your cost of goods tends to be closer to the real-time market. So margins are starting to tighten. There's no doubt. That makes a lot of sense. It's fascinating. Kyle, we'd love to check in with you as this plays out. As I understand, it's going to be a while still. It looks like it looks that way. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much. Kyle Little is the COO of Sherwood Lumber. Coming up, shares of Snap are climbing as the company holds its partner summit with a bunch of headlines. Got a 5% gain right now. We're going to dig into the new e-commerce features they've announced and what it means for retailers next. Stay with us on The Exchange. Welcome back. We've had a lot of news out of Snap this hour. We have more headlines now. Let's get right back out to Julia Borson with the very latest. Julia? Well, Kelly at Snap's Partner Summit, which is starting to wrap up right now, the company unveiled new augmented reality tools and new options for developers and content creators. New features to help brands reach consumers include one that allows people to scan products and find similar looks to buy within Snap. Plus, there's ability to use augmented reality lenses to try and close and bags with both motion and voice commands, along with tools to find accurate sizing for eyewear and jewelry. Plus, now business Businesses can build profile pages and offer the option for users to shop directly. And new connected lenses will enable people to play with augmented reality games together. Pretty cool stuff. Now, to make the platform more appealing to creators, Snap introduced gifting, effectively a way to tip Snap stars, new pro editing tools, and an online destination to watch the content that's designed for Snap off the platform. Plus, a new creator marketplace will help Snap creators connect with brand partners, similar to the way Instagram has been connecting creators and brands. And Kelly, of course, we had that Poshmark news, um, Snap laying out all these new tools, like the ability to layer a map for the 250,000 developers working on the platform and that Poshmark news, that partnership sending that stock skyrocketing as well. Kelly, we're going to be talking about all of this and more with Evan Spiegel, Snap's CEO and founder. That's coming up on Tech Tech tomorrow. Oh, looking forward to that. So is Poshmark involved in that uh, sort of virtual try-on or that's going to be a different piece of, the, of what Snap's doing? 
It's yet another platform. So it's a Poshmark mini app within Snapchat so mm. people can shop and do sort of a social game within the platform. Oh, interesting. Well, again, investors seem to love it both for Poshmark and for Snap. But Julia, thank you. We appreciate it. Julia Borston. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.